Hello ladies, blokes and non-binary folks. Welcome to episode 125 of the Lunar Poetry Podcast. As the more keen-eared listeners will have noticed, I am not David Turner. Not to worry though. He'll be back at the end of the episode to say a final goodbye as he steps down from hosting this incredible podcast which I'm happy to be taking over. So for now... Allow me to reintroduce myself. My name is Peter DeGraft Johnson. I usually say it more like Peter DeGraft Johnson, speak fast, drop my T's. Some of you will already know me as the repeat beat poet, but here with you, I'll just be going by PJ. For the interests of levity and brevity. So that's PJ, like pyjamas and not BJ like certain sexual acts or thatch-headed prime ministers. In this episode, David speaks to the Bristol-based Blackburn-born NHS worker, activist for wheelchair users and fantastic poet Stephen Lightbown about his debut poetry collection, which is a reflective, gritty, uplifting set of poems entitled Only Air, which was published by Burning Eye Books in 2019. They also discuss performing, watching and joining in with poetry purely on digital platforms as we're still in this extended corona season. The pair also talk about how Stephen grew to write extensively but not exclusively about his personal experiences as a wheelchair user and challenging the restrictive norms of how we view or more likely ignore people with spinal cord injuries or with differing accessibility needs. It's a brilliant interview and you can find more of Stephen's work at Spoke and Pencil across social media. You can also find a full and free transcript of this episode on our website, lunarpoetrypodcast.com, alongside all the previous episodes and their accompanying transcripts too. It's very useful if you like to read along with the poems. On the website, you'll also see our Poetry Podcast Finder for UK and Ireland, which is a database of nearly a hundred other poetry podcasts that you can use to scratch your poetry itch, uh, including the remarkable A Poem A Week podcast, heralded by Lizzie Turner, which I've also appeared on. It's a brilliant show, but I am slightly biased. All links will be in the description, of course. And last but not least, a bit of good news. Back in April, I applied for an emergency covid grant from the arts council england to continue the great work of this podcast and thankfully that application was successful so we'll be releasing podcasts regularly towards the end of summer and in autumn you can keep up with all the latest lunar poetry news by following lunar poetry podcasts on facebook or the newly launched twitter account at lunar poetry pod Alongside subscribing to us on SoundCloud, Podbean, Stitcher, Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you go for your quality podcasts. I'm on Repeat Beat Poet on all platforms if you'd like to contact me. But for now, I'll leave you for the last time in the incredible, capable hands of David Turner and Stephen Lightbound. Bear off a leash. I'm out with Bear on Victoria Street. He pads on all fours beside my wheelchair, slaloms his way through soil rain that falls from freshly watered hanging baskets, perched like floral eagles on London's lampposts. Metal cranes observe from above as they deliver skips to third floors of empty shell buildings, not yet with lifts and walls. Wet nose to the ground, tension stretches his sinews. His fur bristles, moments from mayhem. The street is a treadmill in reverse. Every third door, a pret. Repetition everywhere. Step, step, pret, step, step, pret, 
step-step prep. Tourists and commuters momentarily forget their handhelds. We don't belong here. I'm wary of Bear. I just want to get to the station without incident. No bag dropped and a thousand hands to help. No raised curbs and falling out of my chair. No collisions with the oblivious and distracted. A wheelie suitcase here, double pram there. Sideways glances, unseen wrath from Bear. Bubbles of rage fight for release. Bear explodes, chaos. Now what right, he claws at a man on a Boris bike. Interloper on the pavement, briefcase and metro in his basket. He is too close to our attention. Bear scratches at the fact we are different. That in this city of a million faces, we stand out below eye level. The commuter cyclist is collateral damage from our age. An accident, like we once were. Live eyes ignore sense. Bear is too strong for me. I grasp at the space where moments ago he was. Bear, stop. What are you doing? Let it go, I plead. Bear replies, say he deserved it. Bear's gone. Redwoods loom, their branches retreat. You're pathetic. Forget the chair. Stand up for yourself. For once, say I was right. No good ever comes when Bear is like this. I know what he thinks. If people want to stare, give them a show. Take me out from the trees. Put me in a big top. Silence and shame will deliver us to the station. But Bear is right. Bear is shaking. Furious. Thank you very much, Stephen. How are you doing? Yeah, very good. Thanks, David. Yeah, it's good to be here. We're uh, coming towards what feels like the most intense period of the COVID-19 lockdown in the UK. But we're still observing social distancing rules and we're talking via FaceTime on our Macs. So it seems strange to say nice to be here because we're both not here, are we? That's right. I'm I'm not even two metres away from my laptop. (laughs) I mean, we're all here, but at the same time, not here. But it's a Saturday morning. We're doing what is to be my 125th and final recording. And this is only the second I've ever done uh, not sat in front of someone. But it's all going to be fine because I know Stephen really well. I think I should probably clarify Stephen as well because um, it's good to be upfront about these things. That we're friends, aren't we? I think we consider ourselves friends, don't we? Yeah. This happens quite a lot in poetry that you meet people and become friends with them. I never expected to consider so many poets friends, but uh, (laughs) here we are five years in and uh, there's a whole bunch of them. Yeah. I'm friends because of the podcast, actually, I think, because we um, first met at Verve Festival. That's right. And yeah, yeah, I'd been listening to the podcast and connected on social media and stuff and you came up and said hello and and they blossomed from there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, one more and final caveat for the conversation. This is more for the listeners. We're going to be touching on some topics today. And because we're friends, I may ask some questions with far more informality than I would if I didn't know Stephen. I think it's important to say things like that because uh, sometimes when you drop in on friends' conversations, lines of questioning can seem a bit glib or insensitive. That isn't for you, Stephen. That is purely for the listeners. That's all right. Yeah, yeah. Understood. <laughs> so you um, you just read a poem there from a book, and you should tell us about that book. That's one of the poems from my debut collection, uh, a book called Only Air, which came out last year, last March 2019, through Burning Eye Books. It's a book that kind of charts my experiences of 25 years or 20 years, really, of uh, when I started writing those poems about my life as a wheelchair user. I had a an accident when I was 16. Um, I was sledging in the snow, thought it'd be a good idea to sledge backwards through some trees. Uh, also when it was dark. So, you know, there was lots of things that probably should have been thinking might have been a, a better idea to avoid. And I, and I hit a tree and spent six months in a spinal unit. Now I'm a, a paraplegic full-time wheelchair user. I don't know. I think about... 15 years after the accident I started someone bought me a notebook and I just started to jot some things down in there and that led to me going on to a poetry course with Malika Booker which led to me writing a poem it was a letter to my legs as a way of saying I'm really sorry for kind of ignoring you and um you know 
falling out and ignoring you for the past 20 years because this strange detached feeling that I had with with parts of my body that I couldn't feel anymore. And Malika said suggested that there might be something in that in terms of writing more poems on my disability and my chair and how that feels. And actually, I'd, I'd wanted to get into poetry as a way of getting away from that, from writing about anything but my chair. It was an escape. And in this notebook, when I flick through the early pages, I'm writing about how much I enjoy baked potatoes and <laughs> uh, hedgehogs and weird stuff that's in there and football and all sorts of stuff. But actually, I went home, I started writing and then couldn't stop. And then sort of four or five years later, I had all of these poems and just felt like they wanted to sort of fit into some kind of collection, really. I didn't know what else to do with them, but I know I wanted to share them. What was the timescale, roughly, of the transition from writing purely for yourself to thinking about an audience or a readership? It was quite quick, really, I think. But I, for context, I guess I, I didn't even start showing an interest in poetry until my mid-30s. So I was kind of late to this, really. And I was one of those poets when I, I didn't consider myself a, a poet at the time. I was just writing stuff down and they all rhymed and they were all daft. And I didn't read poetry and the ego in me said I didn't need to read poetry. You know, everyone else, I don't really like poetry. I just like writing it. But then I've always been a bit of a show off. And that's, you know, that's why I'm also, the accident happened because I was showing off. So I've always had that in me from a really young age of being kind of extroverted and, and wanting to, to sort of be the centre of attention, but then also wondering why I want to be at the centre of attention and kind of shine away from that at the same time. So it wasn't that long after writing these poems that I started to think, oh, I want to, you know, I'd just been through quite a big breakup and I was going on on dates and I was that annoying person that would read poems to people. And I look back now and actually die inside because they were were (laughs) terrible. So I was kind of, I was performing them at that point. I think I was using these first dates as a way of actually just trying to create an audience and get some feedback. And the feedback is that there weren't many second dates. And, um, (laughs) but then I started, I think I was in London. So a lot of this stuff was, was around. So I think John Hegley was doing like a regular thing at the poetry cafe and you could kind of turn up and he would read some poems and then you could read a poem back. And uh, I went to a, a poetry stanza group in Greenwich. But then in amongst writing these poems, I was coming up towards the 20 year anniversary of my accident. And I had the idea to write 20 poems for 20 years. And I wanted to write and I wanted to kind of produce, to put them into like a little pamphlet myself and give 20 of those pamphlets out to close family and friends so 20 poems for 20 years in 20 pamphlets I kind of I had that and then in my non-poetry life one of these dates worked and turned into a into a marriage and I, I changed jobs and moved to Bristol and moving to Bristol really completely consolidated by my love for poetry and I guess that's where it really took off because there's a fantastic poetry scene in in Bristol but it's quite it feels quite compact at the same time there was lots of things to go to, lots of things to listen. People were really willing to kind of share and talk and things like that. And quite quickly, I started to absorb a lot of information, which then led to conversations with people. And I was able to read more, which then meant I was building a bit of a profile in Bristol. And then I was approached by Burning Eye to see if I had a manuscript. So really, from someone buying me that notepad and writing poems about baked potatoes and not reading anything else, to the book coming out, was about seven years. We've spoken about this before. I was just wondering, it's a very natural thing, I think, for most people to get into poetry, like sort of as an adult, in that there's a period where it's almost the poems are diary entries and you're sort of writing to yourself and working out your own emotions. And then there's sort of a transition. Some For some people, it's a sharp leap, but for other people, it's a very smooth and long, drawn-out transition. You don't necessarily notice it, but you you move from sort of diary entries to deliberate communications with audiences. So you're not talking to yourself strictly anymore. You're talking to other people. That's right. I think the first poems that I started to write, personally, I felt they were quite cathartic. They They were like free therapy for me because I was able to articulate thoughts that I was having and anger and resentment that built up from the being in the chair that actually enabled me to kind of put this stuff down on paper and then question it 
question whether or not I actually felt like that and move beyond that initial anger and kind of probe why I was feeling angry, what it was that was making me feel that way. And I wasn't doing it for any other reason. For me, it was a purely personal learning process. I've spoken to other poets who say, oh, yeah, you know, I don't write. It's not it's not cathartic because it's a, it's an art form or it's whatever. But for me, I the art form side of it and the performance side of it wasn't really coming into it at, at that point when I was writing these particular poems. Because I found that poetry, the sort of the succinctness and the, the ability to use different forms and the way to kind of play around with language was giving me a platform to challenge the way that I thought about things more than say if I was just going to write prose or, or pure diary entries, which I'd been doing before. I'd, I'd kind of had, I'd had bits of therapy in the past and it didn't always work for me because I kind of felt like I didn't want to stick at it. I'd go and have three or four sessions and I'd be like, right, done. I'm, I'm sorted now. I'm all right. But one thing that someone did stick was, was saying, write a, a positive diary. So every good thing, just ignore everything else that happens in that day. And even if the only thing that someone does is make you a cup of tea, just write that in as a diary entry. So I was flicking through this stuff, actually, and I'd kind of stuck at that for about a year. And I was like, actually, there's some positive things in there as well. But then actually doing that made me think more about, actually, how do I fit into the world? Then I started to think about, actually, society and some of those societal things about not being able to get on a train without asking for assistance. And then I was like, actually... This is all right, me understanding this, but this is bullshit. Actually, this stuff shouldn't be happening. I then found I wanted to kind of use it as a way of changing perceptions and trying to challenge the norms that people had. Uh, I think I I I made a conscious decision. I thought, look, I can go and read poems at an open mic night and write about whatever I want to write, trees or love or rainbows or whatever it might be. And that'd be fine. I'd be, I would be a poet in a wheelchair that wrote about those things. Or I, made a, or I could make a conscious decision to be a poet in a wheelchair that talks about those things that actually probably not many other people are talking about on that open mic, if no one else. And I realised actually I was going to those events. I wasn't seeing people like me and I wasn't hearing poems that I kind of could connect to on a real personal level. I could connect to people talking about I don't know, love of football or something like that that they were talking about. But I didn't really see anybody talking about poems. There was the you know, there was poems about mental health and there was poems about um, the body and relationship with body and occasionally poems about disability, but nothing so specific to me about spinal cord injury and being a wheelchair user. And actually I made that conscious decision that that's what I wanted to write about and that's what I wanted to you know, not necessarily, I didn't mind if I was pigeonholed in that. So we're 13 or 14 months on from the publication of Only Air. And as you're saying, a very conscious decision to write about your experiences as a wheelchair user and um, being very blunt about the fact that that would be the subject matter, unflinchingly. It's hard when I know guests so well because it, I'm, I find it hard to separate the person I know and the memories I have of them from their writing completely. And sometimes I transfer their personalities onto the writing and read a lot into the writing because I know the people. But that that whole idea of um, a sort of journey through writing and so much of it starting from anger, it reflects a lot in my own writing process, but also a lot of people that I know that write about, as you were saying, there's a lot of writing about mental health issues and certain forms of disability, a lot of writing about class and... um, other subjects where you might feel like your body or you as a person are not always welcome in the world around you. And there's sort of a natural transition towards, hopefully, the healthy thing seems to be that you realise that your own body is not the issue. It's the fact that the world around you won't allow it to fit in. Just wondering, now you've had time to reflect on the the book and you've had some time away from it do you feel it's been successful in that i think so i mean i I think one of the things that i try to do as well quite quickly actually the the anger poems moved to one side i sort of then made another decision that i just wanted to talk about i wanted to normalize my life in public so i wanted to talk about the things that everyone else was doing that people maybe didn't think that i could do so like relationships or having a job or going on holiday and just doing those things that people maybe don't assume 
are fairly normal things to be able to do. And and quite a lot of people have come up to me and said afterwards, I'd never even thought of that before. Like I've never I'd never thought of what it would be like for someone that can't feel half of their body to lie in bed next to someone that can feel all of their body. That person that can feel all of their body stroking your legs and you've got no idea that that's happening. But that's a real intimate moment that you've shared with us. And, you know, I feel kind of privileged to be let in on that and, and know a little bit more. And also I think my wife and I both reflect on the fact that people are inquisitive. And I think I have to, I've had a lot of time to get over and get used to people asking me really random questions. And for my wife, who's still fairly new to this, you know, we've been together for four or five years. I can't remember that. I was going to, you keep that in because it doesn't make a difference. <laughs> <laughs> She'll find something to shout at me about in this anyway. So it might as well be the fact I can't remember how long we've been together. Yeah. You know, so for her, she's still getting used to people saying to her like really random questions about our relationship and, you know, why she's with me. And uh, she's like, well, he's got a Northern accent. Like, that's what I liked about him. Like, I was like, oh, yeah, he's in a chair. Like, she forgets. And that's that's really good for us. And so it annoys her when people, it's the first thing that they think about. So for me, I thought, I might as well answer some of these questions because I know people in the audience are thinking them. If I'm sat over there reading a poem about something else, I know people are thinking, like, how did he have an accident? And was it a car crash or whatever it was? So part of me thinks I might as well own that information. The book has helped, I think, in terms of me just be a bit more okay about with what I'm prepared to share and not share. But also I think it's enabled other people in similar situations to, to come up and and say, thanks, yeah, I've read that book and that really resonated with my life. You mentioned just before that you were happy when you first started reading to be pigeonholed or labelled in some way as a disabled writer because you were just firm in your belief that you would own that and you wanted to be representative of these voices you weren't hearing at events. Was it the audience interaction afterwards that helped you to realise that you weren't only appearing as that? You know, because it's quite often you, and I, and I hate to make it seem like a solitary pursuit because it's not, because, you know, you, you spoke about um, going to writing groups and moving to Bristol and there being a community. It isn't an isolating thing, but it, it can feel isolating because you're with your own thoughts all the time. But it isn't until you meet readers or you read at events and you hear from audience members that you realise how open your own writing is. And it's not actually just about a singular subject, is it? That's right. And you think you could be writing about one topic and you read a poem and someone comes up and talks to you about that poem and says, oh my God, yeah, I, that really resonated with me, that that poem about your dad. And I was like, that was a poem about my dad? Oh, right, fair enough. <laughs> I didn't realise that was a poem about my dad. That was a poem about me being a child and sort of this, that and the other. And You know, you you cannot, you can write a poem. What you can't do is is dictate what people take from that poem. You know, I think that's one of the joys about this is, is I've not had many reviews of, of my poetry, but the ones that I do, I'm always kind of really intrigued as to when people say, oh yeah, I really like the way that he put that line after that line and how this bit formed. And I was like, yeah, that is a happy accident. I mean, that's, I don't know how much thought goes into this or how much, you know, there's an element of, of craft, but then also I think I'll take, I'll take that praise where it comes. But it's quite nice to be considered to be a, a, a poet. I think there's always that imposter syndrome that still sits in this sort of stuff. And th there's that feeling that maybe I'm only being asked to, to read because of the chair and I'm reading about something that maybe might make me ironically stand out. In a, in a group of other poets that maybe are all talking about similar issues. And actually, I kind of just learned to go with that, really. There's always something to fight against. But equally, there's always a, there's always a way of thinking, do you know what, I'll just take this door that's been opened or I'll take this opportunity and I'll just go with it and I'll, I'll make it work for me. In the time that we've known each other, it seems like you've been on a, a bit of a, a, a X-Factor moment here, personal journey, to um, find this balance in your own writing where by you can simultaneously embody personal feelings around access and representation but find a balance between that and being labeled by other people as one thing and how restrictive that can be it's i was gonna say ironic it's actually really fucking annoying that you, you can be talking about matters around restriction and lack of representation 
And then by doing so, you're just sort of labelled as one thing and then restricted in another way. But you seem to have come quite a long way in finding your own personal balance with those things. Yeah, definitely. Before I before I wrote poetry, before I used that as a thing that kind of consumed and filled my time, I liked doing endurance sporting events. So I would do marathons and triathlons and long distance swims and all that sort of stuff. Would really throw myself into the into the training and get really wound up and like the competitive side of me came out. And that was basically to prove to people that I could still do this stuff. It, I realized a lot of what I was doing and in my career as well, I I progressed quite quickly in my, in my day job, chase promotions and, and moved around the country trying to get these jobs and was thrashing myself at, at work that way. All because I wanted to prove that I could do these things that I couldn't, I wasn't going to be held back by my chair. Coinciding with writing the poetry was, and I had a few injuries and an and illness and actually just then wasn't able to train as much as what I was doing before. So the poetry then filled that time. But the more I wrote, the more, my wife said I was becoming much more chilled out. Like I was finding much more peace and um, with with not having to kind of constantly prove people wrong. So actually finding that balance of just being happy to be on stage and just say, look, this is who I am. This is what I'm talking about. And I'm not really bothered whether or not you are impressed by this or not impressed by this. I just want to kind of talk to you about it. And that, that balance really helps. And then I wasn't really bothered if I'm pigeonholed or not. I don't know if I would consider myself a political poet in the sense I'm not canvassing for change all the time. I'm not kind of like wanting people to go and then lobby their MPs. But weirdly, I've been asked to then write more think pieces on some of this stuff, you know, outside of poetry or talk about this stuff. But I think it's just, you just be true to yourself and true to your experiences then actually through that, hopefully, you know, and also I think I would just be setting myself up for a fall if I felt like me reading my poems to 10 people was going to change the world. It's, it's not, but if it makes one person in that room think slightly differently or maybe doesn't sprint across a car park to ask someone that they see getting out of a car in a wheelchair, if they need help, then that's great. That's sort of all I can hope for, really. And I think that's kind of helped me manage my expectations about the book that, you know, it's not going to, you know, not everyone's going to win a forward prize. Not everyone's going to sell thousands of copies and be asked to do nationwide adverts. They're not going to be asked to do, you know, opening of festivals and all that sort of stuff. That doesn't mean your poetry doesn't count. It doesn't mean there's not a place for it. And it doesn't mean that even if you don't have a book, and all you're doing is scribbling on post-it notes, that's absolutely fine. I'm going to disagree with something you just said, and it's mainly because I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit. I am in agreement with you that the reality is that if you're reading to relatively small audiences, that uh, it's not going to have necessarily a wide-ranging impact because logistically it can't. But one thing that I do feel that your energy in the way that you look at poetry has had an effect, and that's on organisers of events. I would argue that that will have a far-reaching impact. The way that you talk and get into discussions on social media will have a significant impact in the access that other writers have, those that have a wide range of um, access needs. I think it's important for listeners to know. I think most people that know you would disagree that it's not having an effect, is what I wanted to say. But if we just if we go on to talking about... Um, because you mentioned earlier in the conversation that you weren't seeing or you weren't seeing and or hearing from people with spinal cord injuries specifically. Obviously, a very, very sort of narrow view of that would be to say, well, of course, most poetry events are held in basements or back rooms or pubs, and it's hard to get into them. But that's only... Uh, a very short and narrow-minded answer because it also lets people off, I think, from doing something about it. Yeah, I agree. I think, I mean, I'm happy to be challenged in the way that you just did, actually, because I, I think, again, whenever you sort of embark on something new with a disability, there are new ways to then be frustrated at the injustices that you face because you think, actually, this is a world I wasn't looking at before. I was focused over there at not being able to get on public transport or 
not being able to get on a beach and then go surfing. That's where I was diverting my energy. Oh, now I'm in poetry. Right. I'm now going to get annoyed about the fact that I can't get in venues or um, if you can get in a venue, there's no disabled toilet. Or if you can get in a venue and you can have a pee, actually you can't get on the stage and you've got to sit in front of the stage and no one can see you. I think you're right in the sense that lots of events are held upstairs in pubs, downstairs in basements, in quite small venues. I'm also pragmatic enough to appreciate that you know, there's not much money in poetry. A lot of these people that are putting events on are doing it out of goodwill. You know, they're, they're doing it at a loss and venues are expensive. You know, you're not selling tickets for 20 quid a time and 200 people are turning up. You know, you're getting three, four, five quid a ticket, maybe 15, 20 people are in the room and you've got to pay travel expenses for your headliner and you've got to pay a fee for the headliner. And maybe the venue is secondary. And maybe, you know, I've I've heard people talk before about, well, why would I, you know, I've not once have we ever been contacted by someone with a disability about putting an event on. So why would I put an event on that's accessible? I get it's the right thing to do, but it's going to cost me more money and no one's going to turn up. And you're like, well, no one's turning up because they're not seeing people. You know, it, it takes time to do this stuff. Um, but equally, the time it takes to maybe get people in your audience, your event might have stopped because maybe you've got bored or things have moved on or you've moved away. And so there is a sort of, cycle to these things it's really difficult but actually i think it's hard a lot of the time because people are consumed in putting that event on they're not necessarily having the brain space to think about actually some of these things are quite straightforward you know it's it's not that hard to think about i was contacted to read a a, a new event that was starting and they said uh, yeah it's in it's in this venue venue's fine it's accessible there's a loo and all that sort of stuff um, but the venue have said that they're going to bring a stage in, you know, it's a temporary stage and are you happy to sit in front of it? And I was like, the venue doesn't have a stage. You're going to bring one in for the night. Why bring it in at all? Like it doesn't need it. You're only going to have 15 people. They can all see us. We don't need to be on a stage. And they were like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good point. And I think I'm happy to have those conversations with people and kind of talk about stuff. And I talking a lot about conscious decisions, but again, I, when I did the launch of On The Air, I wanted it to be as accessible as possible. I'll sometimes go to talks that have said they want to talk about accessibility in poetry, and I get there and realise what they're talking about is whether or not you can understand Sonnet 67 that Shakespeare wrote, because it's written in a language that's maybe quite difficult to understand, and it's not talking about things that we get. And I'm thinking, all right, that's accessibility in one form, but that's not the accessibility I'm thinking about. Before we even get to that, we need to think about whether or not I can actually get into this venue to hear this poetry. You know, I think that is a conversation that doesn't happen enough in poetry circles. There's a lot of focus on whether or not, you know, does spoken word have a place alongside page poetry? And does this, are we still able to kind of celebrate poetry that was written 100 years ago? And how many people are on, who's on what shelf and who's winning what awards? And But the actual reality is the fact that there is a whole part of this of our population that is not allowed into poetry events and no one seems to really mind that much. I think that is a, I think that's pretty disgraceful. And I think, you know, there's a lot more we can do about that. I know we'll get onto it when we talk about the lockdown stuff and how that's helped in some ways. Um, but yeah, I made, I made a conscious decision that I wanted to make my nights as accessible as I could make them. And I, and I say that because I, I realized very quickly that I only knew about access and disability in terms of my own personal experiences. And actually I was very naive when it came to other things. And I was devastated when I realized there's people coming to my events who had disabilities different to me and my event wasn't accessible to them because I was like, I've made you feel like I feel when I go to events and I'm not having that. Mm -hmm. I think this was my point about not, doing yourself down when you talk about the impact you might have through your writing and the work that you're doing because one of the most positive outcomes of that event was your ability to talk openly and honestly about the areas that you felt that you failed in you know because it's only through us as a community talking about our own mistakes that anyone else can learn from them because how else will you know you know unless someone unless people have told you I think what's really important is that we avoid a situation where it becomes incumbent on the person that has the access needs to have to tell you how to solve these things. So that the listeners know that I, I hosted that launch and recorded it. And whilst we both feel as though we're very 
we're very proactive in trying to find out about if we're going to say that an event or a project is accessible we are very proactive in asking what does that mean to make things accessible and suddenly on the night we both realized that neither of us had any expertise in how to use an induction loop um, which is for those that don't know it's the a system which enables uh, a microphone link to um, hearing aids for anyone that's using them in the audience and we suddenly found out halfway through the event that it wasn't working because neither of us had really thought about at all that you might have to check that unfortunately in a lot of circumstances you need the hearing aid to test it but it's only through I think being willing or not too overly embarrassed about admitting that publicly that other people might think oh shit I've never thought about that either yeah that's right and I think yeah I mean I was I was I was gutted about that but actually I didn't I didn't want it to just kind of spoil the night I particularly didn't want it to spoil the night for the for the people in the audience that that didn't work for but actually just being able to have a conversation with them and then come to a solution which is where I gave them copies of the book and gave them the poems that were going to be read out so they could follow along I don't think it, it, it by no means was that an ideal situation the feedback I got afterwards was that they appreciated that and we've continued the dialogue since then about what works and what could be improved at different at different events I think I, I have no problems with making that mistake. I have a problem with making that mistake again. Yes, yeah. Going forwards, yeah. I can't beat myself up for not knowing something, but I can uh, I can try and make sure that that doesn't happen again and then try and use that, as you say, as a, as a way of then helping other people to, to figure stuff out. And I think this is where I feel like I've grown as a performer or as someone that's interested in poetry because I think being fairly new to, to poetry... You know, you, you, you go to a workshop and someone will say to you, right, you need to read every day, you know, and you go to it, you go to something and someone will say, have you read this poet by X? And you're like, no, I haven't. Oh God, I'm a terrible poet. And you go away and buy that book. And I'm forever buying books without ever reading them because I'm spending more of my time reading the books. And, you know, I thought when I was doing this, my, before I started this, my experience, I thought Sonic was a song by the Verve. I didn't realise it was anything else. So I could spend all my time reading and learning about form and other poets. and Or I've spent a lot of my time actually trying to learn about putting on events and talking to other people about events and trying to make them accessible. And I, I think, I, I'm again, it's about that balance of, you know, I want to grow personally with this art form that I'm choosing to to get into but also i want to spend a lot of my time that is consumed by poetry in terms of sharing it and allowing other people to share their poems i'm not bothered if i never read another poem again if it means that there's 50 other poets out there with disabilities that are able to read their poems and can talk about their experiences because i think that's important because i think a lot of people think you know they're not sharing a poem they're not able to get to open mics and so maybe they think their standard of poetry is not up to that of the people that are able to read poems 20 times a week. That's why, you know, it takes, it's a slower, longer process to kind of hone your craft and, and get to a standard that you're maybe feel like you're growing because it takes longer because the, the events are fewer and far between. I think this is a good point to take a second reading. And then I think we will visit the uh, invisible digital world of uh, poetry events sure given it's lockdown i was thinking about things that i've missed through lockdown and one of those is the cinema so i thought i'd read this poem um, it's called walking again through avatar act one in 3d glasses i walk as sully's blue skin navi mobile again i've got this folded into my velvet cinema seat Somehow unbalanced, running on feet not owned for 15 years. I breathe. I believe. Act two. Behind the glasses, tears escape the red-blue hue as I escape into celluloid. Trapped by my body, prisoner in the IMAX, grateful for the black box darkness. Credits. I'm not ready to wrench atrophied legs from seat to wheelchair. Groundbreaking. I ran. The names of those who helped me challenge surgeons' words 
roll before my eyes. We obviously now exist in a world where physical access to any space is uh, heavily restricted for everyone now. Um, and I think I think we're over the worst of um, able-bodied people on Twitter complaining that they can't get anywhere, and as though it's uh, suddenly an, a new phenomenon that some people might not be able to get into certain spaces. But we, this goes across the board for many industries and sectors, but um, obviously the arts uh, sector already had some uh, experience of uh, digital events and streaming. A lot of artists have led the way in making sure that events could continue online through not particularly new platforms, but platforms that are being used fresh for these sort of things like Zoom and um, Instagram Live. You're one of the poets, I say one of the poets, you are a poet, which is um, embracing Instagram Live and you've got these Instagram sessions that you're doing uh, weekly now, aren't they? That's right, yeah. yeah. Lockdown, I think, has been a, a really interesting time and I kind of caveat all of this conversation like I've done with with everything we've been speaking about so far that these are my kind of personal experiences I'm not I can't, I'm not an expert on anyone with a disability that's maybe you know their own experiences of, of lockdown I fully appreciate I'm lucky in the sense that I've got a partner that I get on with I live in a nice flat you know we'd we've not been short of things to eat and that sort of stuff so it hasn't been particularly traumatic for us but it's been really really interesting and actually the start of this year I had five weeks off work where I my body had just given up on me I just was was not able to get off the sofa and I was physically tired and every part of me ached I'd had five weeks where I didn't really leave the house and I'd gone back to work after that period for a couple of weeks and then lockdown happened so I felt like I'd, I'd done my kind of my warm-up you know I was I was kind of ready to go for <laughs> lockdown I knew what I knew what to expect I have tried not to get frustrated at, at people saying oh this is really hard I'm struggling with isolation and the difficulty of not being a, allowed out because equally I've seen lots of people with disabilities say well this isn't a new thing you know like welcome to our world this is what this is what we've been experiencing our lives you know you know we have long periods stuck inside and again I think well I've had 25 years to get used to not being out and not being able to get to stuff and and it is scary and it is worrying and it is frustrating and I, I can see why anxiety and, and mental health problems would would come on quite quickly if it's something that you're not used to because you know I didn't go straight from being a 16 year old that was playing football every day and riding my bike every day to then being a wheelchair user and just crack on and just think there was nothing wrong with it you know I was I was pretty angry and beaten up for for a few years while I came to terms with that so I think it takes time to get our head around anything that challenges the equilibrium, which is what's happening at the moment. You know, any any kind of normal that anyone had has been challenged to a degree, pretty much. And there are people then that have kind of early adopters in some sense that try to have, have embraced that and have thought, right, whatever I do, whether it's fitness classes, poetry, film reviews, whatever it might be, let's stick that online and let's get that content out there because it's giving people something to do. But also it's giving me an outlet to be able to do these things. And either that might be monetary because you've had an income dry up or it might be creatively or it might just be to kind of alleviate boredom. You know, you, you think, actually, I'm, I'm, I've watched pretty much everything there is to watch on Netflix and I can't sit and watch TV anymore. I'm going to have to do something that's connecting with people. And I think I'm somewhere in, in that. But what I've been really interested to observe, coming back to the conversation we've had about accessibility, and this isn't just poetry. It's, you know, as someone that likes going to the, the cinema, there are maybe five or six cinemas in Bristol. At least half of those still aren't physically wheelchair accessible. I moved to Bristol thinking it was a, this amazing musical hub where I was going to be discovering new bands every night and then realised maybe three quarters of the venues are, wheelchair, are not accessible to wheelchairs. And seeing lots of these things that had previously said to you, uh, we're in a really old building and really sorry we haven't got the funding and we can't we can't put a lift in and we're up a flight of stairs so no it's not accessible all of a sudden they're online streaming gigs via zoom and you think well you were accessible because you found a way to be accessible but you're not doing this to be accessible you're doing it because you don't want to lose out on income or you don't want to lose out on on putting content out there and you want to still exist so that you can exist when this is all over and i've gone through many different emotions over the past few weeks of, of actively 
not joining those kind of sessions because I'm like, well, why should I join you now just because you're online? And then I was like, no, 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 hang on a minute. I'm going to join these sessions and I'm going to let them know and I'm going to tweet about them and I'm going to share them. I'm going to email them and say, I've been able to join your session. You weren't accessible before, you are now. Make sure this carries on afterwards. But then there's another equal balance in the sense that it's it's hard because I get, you know, what does it mean for artists and performers? Because people are struggling for income and lots of this stuff we're having to do, people are doing for free and there's not an income generated to it. And I really hope, you know, it doesn't end up being at the expense of things in the real world once this is all over, because we still need to be out there. We still need to be in venues. We still need to feel that hum of an audience. You know, you still need to feel that adrenaline of sitting in front of someone and reading some poems or performing or playing the guitar, whatever it is that you do. But equally, I think there's a, a world where both can coexist. We've proven now that you could put an event on and live stream that for people that can't connect and can't come to your event. You could put an event on where you've got seven people reading at an open mic and three people zooming in and you put them on a screen because they might not be able to make it. They might have an illness. They might have a physical disability that means they can't get into your venue. Equally the same for, for performers. You know, I've, I've shied away from maybe going to read in places around the country because actually travel's more expensive. It takes maybe two days out to do something. I can't just drive there and then drive back that evening. Accessible rooms in hotels are more expensive or hotels with accessible rooms are more expensive than, than just kind of bunking down in a YHA or something like that. But now that means I could headline an event in Newcastle and not have to leave home. And I, and I think we could be richer for it. And um, I've just in, in lieu of having anything else to do, started using Instagram Live to share some, some poems. What's been really interesting for me, we spoke at the very start of this about being able to sit in front of an audience a physical audience in my in my chair and be a disabled poet i now exist in a three inch square on someone's device and i am a white now middle class straight block in my 40s on a screen and i feel after every like 10 seconds i have to say when i'm doing an instagram live Oh uh, well, yeah, I'm I'm writing about I'm reading about my poems as a wheelchair user because I, I realise all this stuff I've been trying to get away from for 25 years. I'm now feel like part of me is missing. You know, the the bit that you can't see in the screen is the bit of me in my chair, and I'm like, oh shit, I didn't realise that. This is annoying. Like, but good at the same time. Just one very quick point. It's very interesting the point you made about perhaps some larger organisations conflating accessibility with their desperate wish to not become irrelevant just to make sure that you're permanently on people's lips is not the same as remaining accessible or becoming accessible in some way yeah when you when you told me the other day about how you now feel the pressure to keep reminding people that may be logging into instagram live that you are in fact a wheelchair user and it is okay for you to be talking about these things it suddenly made me think about whenever i go to open mics and i might have the opportunity to, you know which is very common have the opportunity to maybe read one poem and you think, well, I'm going to read that one about um, sort of mild psycho psychosis or su suicide or or being in a psychiatric unit. And then you think, oh, shit, do I have to set this up and say this is about <laughs> I've I've had all this lived yeah. experience, you know, because suddenly you're just yeah. you're just one of many people. But also I was thinking the other night about how much effort you've put in, um, like a lot of performers, into how you use your body. And then suddenly for so many of us, we're unable to do that within the confines of a video screen, especially when you're live streaming on a phone, you know, that's the whole, this terrible advert that keeps playing and playing on the TV about the, the new Facebook webcam that you put on your TV oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. because you can get yeah. more people in. But it's actually quite a fair point because as, as a performer, you've got, you know, you're used to people having this really wide range of vision and yeah. suddenly you're restricted to this little box. And it doesn't mean that we can't, we can't perform within this space. It's just suddenly we're having to think about it, aren't we? And all this effort you've put into how you present yourself on stage and talking now again about you specifically, that's all out of the window, isn't it? Because people can't see yeah, but I'm But that's right. But I'm trying to maintain some of that. So actually I still put on like, you know, like I still put on my poetry performing clothes so i've got i bought clothes last year when i was doing the launch i thought i'm gonna what is the persona of the person so i was like you know i bought some sort of fairly more 
loud shirts that I wouldn't normally wear. And I'm still putting those on. I'm still sort of do, making it, I'm doing my hair, which is quite fun. I'm, well, I'm learning how to style hair that's about 15 times longer than it's ever been in my entire life. <laughs> but I've still, I'm still sort of dressing that box behind me. Like I've put things there that kind of, you know, placing things that people might subconsciously see or not. There's a bit of Darren Brown going on in all of this where I'm kind of placing stuff in there that I think I want people to see. So I've got a little tiny Lego version of me that sits in a wheelchair. So I now put that behind me so that, you know, people might, it might be in there. And I've had a poster done of me in my chair and that sits behind me when I'm doing these readings as well. And there's a way of kind of being able to play some music on, on my laptop that can then feed into the Instagram live. And, and so I'm kind of playing around with the form a little bit just to sort of, in the way I have done in putting the, the launch together, I'm kind of learning at pace and absorbing and, and, and dipping into other things that people are doing. Cause that's the other thing as well is that people, apart from my mum, maybe who's, who's literally dialed into everything so far <laughs> and is commenting. And, and I was like, thanks mum. This is the, this is the equivalent of sticking me on the fridge. You know, it's like, now you get to put a strong arm emoji on an Instagram live, you know, that's, <laughs> and, and I love you for it. Thanks very much. Is that, you've got people that are dipping in and out it, and it throws you a little bit in the same way that when you might be mid through a poem, someone stands up and walks out to go to the bar. And that, that is like, so it's trying to recreate these things and kind of go with that and just not be thrown by it, but also talking to people as they're commenting or acknowledging people that may be there and trying to create it. I think the first one that I did, I just treated it like it was a poetry night. So I pretended to be the host, the open mic, the support act and the, the headliner. And all I did was put a pair of glasses on, put a hat on or whatever it was. And it was like, actually, we can play around a little bit more and be still creative in this in this space that we've got given. But also, I'm, I'm still learning about the uh, on a fast track in terms of accessibility of these forms. You know, one of the things I've, I've been frustrated by is point still around what is accessible for me might not be for someone else. So personally, I think I'm going to struggle when lockdown ends because I have never felt more connected to the world. I'm dialing into fitness classes and poetry events and readings and workshops across the world and i'm like and not once have i had to ask anybody if this zoom is wheelchair accessible or can i read in this event i've just turned up and done it and dialed in and snuck in at the back or whatever it might be i've realized actually when you've been allowed out i go back out and, and my frustrations at the world have been ramped up again because i'm like i can't get in this shop or this this bit here is inaccessible so I've never, I, I feel really connected, but at the same time, I'm aware of if I had a hearing impairment, maybe it wouldn't be so accessible because people aren't looking at the camera. You know, they're, if they're reading off a page, you're looking slightly off screen and it's, it's more difficult to lit read. It's more difficult to, you know, you can't caption in real time. Um, the software doesn't allow it. Zoom, for instance, you can't spotlight two people talking at the same time. So it would be really difficult to have somebody reading and someone doing BSL. And that is just a really, really simple flaw that it wouldn't be that difficult to set up. Now, one of the people I've been talking to, someone that signed at one of my events last year, I've been talking about whether or not we could do a split screen on, on Instagram Live and she'll sign in real time as I'm, as I'm doing that. And that's something that I'm hoping to do. I'm really looking forward to doing and um i've been you know i've kind of not bored of reading my own poems but i'm using i'd like to use it as an opportunity to talk to other poets about their experiences and to talk to publishers about what it's like to be a publisher in in lockdown and you know if you're an event previously how what's that like to you know and the, the 12 people that dial in the, the dialing into these things it's the same thing you know i, I you know, Holly McNish is having hundreds of people dialing into and, and watching her stuff, but actually hundreds of people go to her events when she reads. When I go and read at an open mic, if there's 12 people in a room, there's 12 people in a room and I'm really happy to connect to those 12 people. So again, that it's also difficult to get out of that mindset of having to compare yourself to people all the time. You know, well, yeah, they've got 25,000 people on their Instagram. I've got a thousand. And so, you know, I love these 12 people that are coming in all the time and, and, and joining in this stuff. You just got to be open-minded and, and go with it and, and hope that some of it carries on afterwards. The other thing I think that's really interesting is I worry about when we're allowed back out again and that venues start up again and 
poems that we'll see in the in the real world again i worry that maybe poets with disabilities will get left behind again you know we've been writing a lot about isolation and being in our own and um what that means and not necessarily having the platform to be able to do that next year probably we will be so bored of hearing poems of people writing about isolation and what that means but actually again i know that there's lots of people with disabilities have said that they're struggling at the moment to find the time to write because they can't pay for a carer to come into their house their their physical needs are, are more demanding at the moment because um they're not getting the care that they would need from being able to go to a gp or a hospital or get people to come in and, and look after them they're sort of physiotherapy type stuff so that sense of actually having that space they're not right maybe not everyone's writing and that's that's okay you know you're kind of surviving and looking after yourself so there's going to be another element of catch-up and by the time that maybe we might come to put some of this stuff on and paper about our experiences of lockdown everyone might be bored of then hearing about these experiences so i think there's always something to be thinking about and i think we you know just mindful of that as well i think is really important one thing that i've been thinking about a lot is this idea that yes being able to access events digitally is infinitely better than not being able to access events at all but being able to access events digitally is not the same and not equivalent to being able to access events physically and i i'm hoping that this isn't seen as a easy way out for organizations to claim full accessibility because what it does is i think it's brilliant because it's going to allow performers to perform if we just accept that performers have the ability to stream and join events and they have the technology it means that you could be headlining in sydney from bristol you know and that would be an amazing thing because it's good for the environment it cuts costs of events down um if people are happy to accept seeing someone on a video screen then why not do it but none of this considers audience members and getting people together physically and i i as we spoke about the other night i do worry that one of the things that come has come up consistently through conversations on this podcast about access is what you miss out on as as a writer or an artist if you're not able to hang out with other artists at the end of events and how much you miss out on in terms of publishing opportunities and performance opportunities abby palmer who's been on the podcast a few times has spoken a lot about how disconnected she feels with the poetry community when she's unable to physically be there. And that still exists when you're able to read digitally event, uh, events because you just log off and then you're, you're gone from the conversation. If we do enter a, a world where digital events become much more common, I really hope that some thought is put into how, how that social space is recreated. Completely agree. I think... Yeah, I, before we doing this podcast, when I was doing a bit of prep, I kind of put something on social media and, and said, you know, what are people's experiences of this and how have people found it? And said, you know, personally, I found it good in some respects. And then there was things I just hadn't realised. So, so, for instance, if you're neurodivergent, if you're physically in an audience, you can take cues from other audience members. And that's not as possible watching on a screen so it can be really tiring and fatiguing and attention span can be difficult because you, you you're dipping in and out of the screen from what from what i was told and and i was like of course you know that what we can do at the moment is is our best but we can still continue to get better and i think we we have to learn i think if we just plateau out and just keep banging out zoom events and keep banging out instagram lives there's also has to be a way that people can get paid for doing these things as well because just because you're just because you sat in your in your front room in front of your bookcase doesn't mean you're not sharing your own poems and putting effort and thought into putting that together. And you've not you know you've not spent maybe a good couple of hours not being able to eat and still getting nervous and sweaty and that energy and that adrenaline and then that come down afterwards still exists. And in in some respects it's more weird because you're not you as a performer, you're not taking the cues from anyone. You're looking at yourself and you think that's really weird you know how, how often do you sit and read a set to yourself and and not get any cues back from anybody in the audience i grow as a performer by by getting feedback from people and that feedback is is it's easier to think you're doing a terrific job because you put a video up and you've got 
27 likes and three comments that say that was great thanks very much and you think yeah this is brilliant it's it's artificial in that sense you know we nothing will ever replace being physically in front of an audience and and existing and talking to other poets and i think maybe we can be a bit cleverer we don't have to just keep churning out poetry readings i think some more conversations and some thought pieces i did a, a workshop this week with with roger robinson and it was i personally thought it was brilliant it was just two hours of him talking about how he puts a book together and those are the odd writing exercise in there but i could have done without the writing exercises i just enjoyed listening to him going through his process about how he's written his books i think some more of that poets who've mentioned that you can use in zoom the kind of the classroom format and go out into breakout rooms and have smaller chats again you can do that because i think if you I'm part of a writing group, well, the writing group that you set up actually in the hours writing group in, in Bristol, which is still going strong. But this, we did a writing workshop this week, but there's like 15 people in. And it's really difficult to just, by the time you've, you're number 15 on that list and you're saying, well, yeah, I'm not going to give any feedback because it's the same feedback that everyone else has given. Just eking our way through this step by step, you know, day by day and trying to understand. But I think there's a really good opportunity at the end of it. I'll be really gutted if I never get to be in front of a live audience again and spend some time with people afterwards talking about and saying, I really enjoyed your set. Thanks very much. How did you pull that together? You know, and, and learning in that real life environment. I think that might be the perfect place to stop, Stephen. <laughs> yeah. We're going to um, take a third and final reading. We were talking before about how I felt. It suddenly hit me. This is the last time I'm going to say goodbye to someone. I'm glad it's you. We will fade out straight after the poem. So I will take this opportunity to say thank you very much for coming on and being my final guest. I may pop up again at some point in some way in the future if PJ will have me. But this is firm, firmly the final time I'll be producing anything. Um, so thank you, Stephen. Yeah, thank you, David. And actually, I, I, it would be remiss of me not to say thank you on behalf of every poet that you've spoken to as part of this um, this podcast series. I think, you know, you've done a tremendous job of giving people a platform to talk about poetry and their experiences and learn from each other. And I definitely, through your podcast, felt I was part of a community that I didn't know existed. So it's been a real honour to kind of come on and be the, the last person and waffle on about poems about baked potatoes. So yeah, <laughs> thanks very much for that. Well, I think if it's made you feel part of something, I don't think I could have done anything more. So... Anyway, we'll take the poem. I'll give a little intro to this, if that's all right, because there's two kind of lockdown connections to this poem. So first of all, it was it was written during lockdown on a on a workshop through Spread the Word and Rachel Long, so which I, I really enjoyed. But also it's um it's part of a series of poems I'm thinking about for a, a second collection, which I was writing before lockdown, but strangely enough was about what would happen if so not me. So I've invented a character of someone who's a wheelchair user and wakes up one day and realizes they're the only person left alive in the world and what it would mean to be isolated outside of a house and actually isolated in the, in the, in the world as it, as it, as it would be in this, in this new version of, of life. Um, and each poem is titled of the day set over a year. So this is day 162, the piano. The piano removes my silk pyjamas. The keys squeeze my fingers like fresh grapefruit at breakfast. And I watch the pith and seeds of my fingers poured into a glass. When the sheet music swims into my eyes, pulls me under with the weight of a treble clef. All I want to know is how did I end up alone in this orchestra, playing a concerto that wasn't written for me. I spend all morning breaking into house after house after house, just to find a piano in amongst the corpses. And I do. I approach it with caution, wipe the dust from the lid, pour the juice back into the grapefruit and crack my fingers. There is no one to teach me, but somehow I have to hear a sound, even if it is played to an audience of photographs that will never applaud. Well, that's it. Six years. 
pretty crazy. A final thank you to Stephen Lightbound for his time. I suppose this conversation revolved around how we get as many people into the poetry room as possible, whether in real life or as part of these increasingly common online events. I hope that the past 125 episodes of this podcast has been an entry point to these spaces and discussions for some of you. All I ever wanted to do with this project was hold the door open for others. A huge thank you now to all of the guest hosts that have helped me offer such a wide range of episodes and, of course, to the more than 200 poets that have appeared in one way or another since 2014. None of this project would have made any sense without you lot, though. And when the first episode went out with Pat Cash, I was simply happy with more than 20 people listening in. And it blows my mind to think that tens of thousands of people worldwide have stopped by at some point and spent time with me and my guests. I'm going to miss doing this a lot, I think, but it also feels right to go. Plus, if there is ever going to be proper progress made, improving the diversity and representation of the arts in this country, then those currently holding editorial and publishing roles need to get out of the fucking way. It's not enough to simply give platforms to underrepresented artists. They need to be allowed control and to make decisions too. So this is me getting out of the way. Lots of love to you, Slot.